Welcome, my fellow wannabes. Welcome to another edition of The Wannabe Critic. I am your host, Gabriel Fast, and joining me is uh, a couple of gentlemen um, from different places. Uh, I have Mikey Collins joining me from Arkansas, and I also have Ethan Maestri of Age of Geek joining as well. Mikey, stop touching my face. Yeah, that's okay. That's all right. You do you. Mikey, how you feeling, man? I'm feeling good. How you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. I, I'm, not, I'm not doing too bad. It's a nice, lazy Sunday. Um, you can't ask for, for many better things, honestly. Ethan, how are you, man? It's uh, it's exactly what you just said. A lazy, wet, rainy Sunday. A good day to stay in and watch a movie. Watch a movie, play games, comic books, whatever. You know pretty much everything that we talk about here on The Wannabe Critic. So today, we are talking about a movie that... Okay, let me let me really take that back a little bit. Today we're talking about a film, a very important film, um, that really has had more of an effect on me since the first time I watched it than I remember. And um, it, we're talking about two thousand one, A Space Odyssey. Now, the first time I watched this movie, and it's actually fitting that Ethan's here, because the first time I watched that movie was actually with Ethan, and we talked about it pretty much right after that on his podcast, and I had so many thoughts, I was feeling much like how Mikey was feeling, Mikey texted me, and he was like, dude, what the crap did I just watch, and I said, we'll talk about it, <laughs> you know, so it's it's uh, it's fitting that we're talking about it on my show, and honestly, I don't think I've watched it since, I think I watched it pretty much right after the first time I watched it with you. It was like I had it was fresh in my mind. I wanted to try and pick up on all these little details or try and find these details again. So being able to revisit it years later now after looking at things with a much more critical eye in a lot of different areas, I appreciate the movie even more. So, gentlemen, yeah. welcome. I can't wait for us to talk about this. Go ahead, Ethan. Didn't mean to cut you off. Well, I was going to say, I, I'm like you. I don't think I have watched the movie all the way through since when we got together. And that was 2014. I think. I think that. I think. Yeah. I mean, it's been at least six years. It's before I went to New York. So yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Kind of, so at least six years since I have seen it. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, thanks for inviting me back on to uh, to talk about this one. Yeah, totally, totally. So the whole reason this kind of started is because our discussion from last week, um, which if you're listening to this by this point, that that conversation will be up. Our top five blockbuster moments. So I wanted to, uh, you know, Mikey had mentioned he had never seen 2001 before, and I said, oh my god, we should all three review it, you know, kind of like in a similar fashion to how we did those top five blockbuster moments. And here we are now, doing that exact same thing. I, I didn't want to wait. I said, you know what, let's take advantage of this time, and here we go. Yeah, Ethan has his uh, his uh, vinyl, and I it reminded me that I also have the same vinyl, so I, swatch, I switched it up. I had a Anna Managuchi up there. Mikey doesn't have anything because he's a loser, which is fine. (laughs) Yeah, Mikey's an actual adult, I guess, because he doesn't have like video game stuff and comic books and all kinds of crap on his wall. You know, he's making a difference. Not anymore. Case back there. So yeah, you got the guitar case and the longboard and all those shenanigans. We we uh, yeah 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 yeah. we like to have a good time. We like to have a good time. (laughs) Um. So I know it's only been about a week since we talked last, but uh, Ethan, what have you been up to, man? Well, I mean, it's, um, you know, we've talked about it a a lot. A lot of movies, 
a lot of games. You turned me on to Outer Wilds. I spent about an hour trying to get into that. It's it's a slow burn getting started. I understand you gotta you gotta put your time in before it picks up. I haven't got there yet because I get distracted on other stuff like Minecraft. We talked about that uh, in a previous conversation on a different podcast. And sure enough, I've fallen into the uh, Minecraft Mount uh, rabbit hole. So a lot of time with Minecraft yeah. right now. I would say the the welcome welcome back to the grind, my friend, because. Uh, <laughs> What is it about casual games that end up being the the games that you spend the most time in? It's crazy to me. I I feel like it's because I don't have a set agenda. And so when I just am able to, oh, I want to try this. And I go do it. And then I find like three or four other things that I want to try as well. And the next thing I know, I've got four hours strung together. And it's just my time. It's, yeah, it's it's literally my time. I want to do what I want to do, mm-hmm. and I can do it. And that's what I really love about that that style of game. Yeah, it, it's been put to me. You know, it's kind of like you make that game whatever you, you know. You make that style of game whatever you want it to be. It can be whatever you want. And Mikey, I'm going to throw it to you. Um, Mikey's put a lot of time into Minecraft as well. But uh, what I mean, have you been playing Minecraft at all, Mikey? Uh, yeah, I play it a lot actually. Um, I, I like going in there. I, I like to play with friends more than anything, but I like going in there and just just kind of building off of what other people have already built. Like I remember not too long ago, me and Carter were making a mine, and he just dug out this entire room. And it was just a giant square. I was like, oh, this is cool. I could do a lot with this. So I, I took like bricks and laid a path out and then dug out all the way to bedrock. And then just put lanterns at the top, so it just looked like a free fall. And it was, <laughs> and it was just each path went to a different mine we had. It looked really cool, but yeah, I, I like just going in there and kind of just thinking about different stuff I can do. I don't, and just monotonous mining. I'll throw on like a Lord of the Rings soundtrack and just start mining until yeah. I <laughs> for hours. Ta 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 ta. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I feel like a noob because I love Minecraft, but my Minecraft experience has been much different than you guys is because. The only way I've ever played Minecraft ever is creative. Oh, man. That's the only way I've ever played because it's like, you know, complete freedom. You have everything at your disposal, whatever, you know, go for it, which is fine. I've never had the experience of playing with friends except whenever I would go to Jace's base or his world and anything that he had ever made. I would get as much TNT as I possibly could and just blow it all up. <laughs> He'd have like an entire colony of that houses. Creative, like yeah. oh my god, it was it was so much fun. But I uh, I I know I would love that game. Like I know I would love putting the time in because honestly, I have, Animal Crossing's been out for a couple of weeks, and honestly, this pales into comparison of what a lot of people have in that game. But I already have like thirty over thirty hours in that game. Um, playing Minecraft or playing uh, Animal Crossing. It's kind of a similar thing of Ethan, what Ethan was saying, like, you know, um, it, you just make it pretty much whatever you want. And I like the freedom to be able to do that. But we're not here to talk about um, the crossing of animals or the crafting of mines. We're here to talk about Stanley Kubrick's 2001, A Space Odyssey. Now, a lot of thoughts are going through my head with this mu- with this movie, and we're just going to get right into it. No sense in wasting any more of these people's times. Time, excuse me, it's not plural. Um, let's just go around the room, so to speak. I'm gonna throw it to Ethan first. Ethan, do you like this movie? I love this movie. Okay, I own this movie on Blu-ray. Um, have for at least six years. 
Uh, I, it's not one that I frequently revisit. As I just said, it's probably been six years since I've, I watched it last, but, uh, man, it, it is one that since I was a kid and my dad introduced it to me, this is one that I've always held as kind of the, the I Ching of, of sci-fi and, it, it, there are different aspects of the movie that I really love and appreciate. I like Kubrick's vision of, of how he paced the movie and how he presented the visuals. It's, it's a masterpiece. And some of the names of the people that worked to make that movie what it is go on to really influence a lot of other movies that I love. Uh, I'm going to throw a name out there, Douglas Trumbull. He was one of the effects uh, supervisors, and he came up with a lot of little little tricks that made the movie look more realistic. And we, we got to remember, this is 1968 when this movie came out, and we're only about 10 years removed from little saucers on fishing string, you know, fishing wire, that sort of effects and now we come to this and douglas trumbull will go on to do star trek the motion picture and other major blockbusters that people are you know they associate with more blockbuster uh you know big production type uh, sci-fi uh movies and so yeah everything that comes out of this movie really just fertilizes everything that's going to come after that and so this is kind of a really a, a, a seminal jumping jumping off point for sci-fi filmmaking. Yeah, very well said. I, I agree with everything that you just said. Um, and I'll, we'll, we're going to come back to that, so don't let me forget. Mikey, let's throw it to you. Do you like this movie? Uh, I I don't know. <laughs> I literally finished it like two hours ago, and it's just bouncing around. Like, I just have so many questions. I think that's my problem right now because I'm – what does this mean? What does that mean? That least yeah. what does that mean? If that means that, well then what does I it's I need I have a lot of questions yeah. that I need answered before I can probably say if I do or don't. Which I'm yeah. leaning towards I do because it's sci fi and I love like just I don't know, what do you what would we call it? Mystery, I guess. Like yeah. in the simplest terms, mystery well, of it. So And I feel like, you know, a lot of modern stories nowadays, they're afraid to be ambiguous. Yeah. And this this motion picture is that it is very ambiguous and it doesn't hide that. Um, it it's, it's much like an ogre. It's very much has layers and, um, there's something in this movie for everybody. In my opinion. Now, if you're wanting to see it at its surface, surface level, whatever, I feel like that's already a complex story and thing to dive into in its own right. But then you have the more deeper themes like pertaining to, you know, morality and you know man's own mythos i guess is the right word um and we're going to kind of dive into that a little bit but I, I i don't think you're go ahead ethan say we have to remember that this was a book first before it was a movie and arthur c clark what is is was one of the greatest sci-fi authors of the 20th century and there are a lot of high concepts and a lot of uh there's a lot of dialogue in the movie, even though there's not a lot of dialogue in in there. Because if you've read the novel by Arthur C. Clarke, he has, like I said, he's presented a lot of high concepts there and takes you through them in detail. Now, in a two and a half hour movie, 
you have to make certain decisions in how you're going to present visually the things that Arthur C. Clarke has put on page. And so, like I said, my dad introduced me to this movie. And when I first saw it, I, I was a lot like you, Mikey, honestly. What am I watching? It, it, there was a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of interpretation that's there that I was not, uh, I was not ready to fill in the gaps on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, I just didn't have the experience level to do it. So, but I, there was a lot of questions asked to my dad. And my dad said, here, read the book. And so I read the book and after reading the book, the movie just becomes, which I know that's uh, in this day and age, that's a bad thing. If you have to read the book to understand the movie, that's not a great thing. But here I, I feel like the vision that Kubrick puts on film matches so brilliantly and it doesn't st- they don't step on each other's toes. And I think that's kind of the brilliance of this as, as a piece of film and then when you take the storytelling aspect that Arthur C. Clarke put together in the novel, if you if you look at both of them, you you can have a a just a fantastic, well-rounded vision of of, of everything that was put together there. Gotcha. Yeah, I wanna I wanna make sure my facts are right here because I I've been reading a little bit before I, you know, before we got started here this evening. Um, I was reading that. Uh, what would become two thousand one was originally a span of short stories written by Clark. Um, and to my knowledge, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I mean, cause I'm getting my information from Wikipedia and a few other sources, you know, so, but you're definitely have the history here. Wikipedia shows that the, that the novel has actually come out after the movie. Is that true? Uh, it might be, I'm not 100% certain on that. Well, you know, whatever, let us know in the comments if we're wrong or if you, if but, you know, for sure. See- to, to your point on the, the short stories, absolutely. You can kind of see the influence of short stories. You really get, are able to split the movie into three segments. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and it does, in some ways, feels like three completely distinct separate stories. Yeah. Through thread being the monoliths. So, yeah, yeah it, it definitely makes sense that it would be uh, parsed together from, from different stories. Yeah, when I, you know, the way I interpret this from what I've read is basically... You know, Clark had these ideas. Kubrick basically helped because Kubrick is not credited for actually um, being the author of 2001. Clark is. But it does say that he helped him write the story. So I'm assuming Kubrick had all these ideas, you know, whatever, probably was sprinkling them in. And then, you know, whatever, whatever happened, happened. But I think Clark's Clark's story, like you're saying, Clark's storytelling um, talent um, mixed with Kubrick's vision, we have something that's really, really special. And um, it's interesting to me how a science fiction movie can really make you think about your life. Um, we, you know, we we visit this theme all the time whenever we talk about Star Wars. And I know from what I've seen of Star Trek, there's a lot of that. You know, this this really incredible. Um, sense of, of feeling connected or you, you, you can relate in a very unrelatable way. And I think that's what's really special about stories in general is you take a, a scenario that really shouldn't make sense to you, but it kind of does. And um, I feel like this story is particularly special because it doesn't just give you the answer of what it's about. 
it doesn't just give you a concrete like this is what the message is whatever i was kind of telling mikey this movie is meant to really make you think and and take whatever you can out of it you know so i we're gonna go kind of around the room and kind of give what we get out of the movie and you know we'll kind of expound on that go back and forth whatever but i do have some notes and i'm sure you guys too do too so um i want to throw it to mikey and ask mikey like what is your biggest question and full on full disclosure if you haven't watched 2001 a space odyssey what's wrong with you but you've been warned we're gonna spoil this so mikey lay, lay a question on us what do you got what's what's something that troubled you my biggest question I don't want to jump to the end immediately, so I'm not going to ask my biggest question unless okay. you want me to. Okay. No. Well. Uh, yeah. Don't jump to the end quite yet. But do, do you have something else? Because you were we were talking about the monkeys before this. I have questions about all three sections: about the monkeys, the businessmen, and the astronauts. That's okay. How I titled each section. <laughs> so, are they really that different though? When you think about it, each section, yeah. Because I was just like, there. I can I can tell Nothing. when each one begins and which one each one ends. But um, okay. Start. Let's start with the monkeys. Let's start with the monkeys. Let's section. start with the monkeys. Yeah. Okay. So, what's the point? <laughs> so I think. Okay. So I, I I I can see like how maybe they're all kind of they're they're all intertwining in a way, and I think there's all like a uh, what do you call it? Like a metaphor for all of them. And the monkeys, I couldn't tell if it was like if it was more evolution or if it was more like this is what we have to do to survive decipher which one or maybe like you were saying it's all up to just my interpretation but i feel like it was more about survival rather than because like it shows them going from being scared to being like ruling the land but also they never encounter that that uh cheetah again so i wonder if that is another thing of maybe they have high heads but then they don't ever deal with the bigger issue Dude, there's so many questions. I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Hold this. Me. <laughs> go ahead, Maestro. I can tell you, you're, you're, you're chomping well, at the bit. Go for it. I was gonna say, it sounds like you've got a lot of the pieces there. You just need a little help, you know, locking them together to get a more complete picture. Yeah. And and really, when you go back to the monolith and the monolith's influence on the monkeys, mm -hmm. uh, it, on it, 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 yes, it's a story about the progression of ape to man. Mm -hmm. Um in the you know the development and use of tools and, and that's what the the monolith is there to help unlock the the intelligence that's there in the monkeys okay kind of give it a push and if it takes then the monkeys are going to take it and run with it hmm. and that's what we see happen the, the the head monkey there uh picks up the bone the spark that the monolith gave him helps him to say oh I, I can do this with this object. Mm -hmm. And then he takes it from there and begins to make advancement and progress. And so that's kind of the first, the first time we see the monolith influencing the development of mankind. And then the rest of the movie is the monolith influencing the development. of mankind. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. really, uh, you know, kind of attaining, uh, attempting to attain a higher power or come in contact with a higher power and really the obsession of a higher power. And it's like, you know, and I think, for a lot of evolutionists, um, they don't want to attribute any sort of credit to a higher power. So they're like, well, what do we do if we can't do that? Yeah. Designer. Yeah. Or a designer, whatever. Let's make it, you know, yeah. let's make a higher power. Let's make something better than ourselves. 
which is where Hal comes in. You know, and I don't want to jump too far ahead from there, but it's always that progression of of trying to be better than what you are. You know, I think is a huge theme in this movie because they're always striving. You know, you really see the monkeys in the most like primal, simplistic form going. You know, just trying to survive given the circumstances that they're in. Now, you know, obviously the the monkey sequence it it takes up a good chunk of time. Um, it's what twenty minutes. Yeah, twenty twenty ish minutes, something like that. Which yeah. talk about the first five minutes, which is just music. You know, um, the most unsettling beginning to a movie of all time. Uh, changed my mind. I, you're just, you know, Mikey said the first thing that came into my head whenever I saw this for the first time is like, is the TV broken? You know, exactly. Um, I was so confused. Yeah. Yeah. And if I can comment on that, that, that is very much part and parcel to the time when this movie was made. And even up through the seventies, I think the, the last film or last movie that was made that had the, uh, oh, what do they call it? Or the overture for the movie would play. Yeah, yeah. And you would have a blank screen or, or, you know, a star field or something of that nature. The last one to do that was Black Hole in 1978 or 9. Uh, it came out shortly after Star Trek The Motion Picture, which it had the same thing. It played an overture to begin. That was something that was common to kind of set the mood uh, mm-hmm. for what you were about to see. And, yeah, you're absolutely right. The, uh, the name of the piece of music is called Atmospheres. And it does that. It really gives an expansive, mysterious quality to the start of the film. And I, I love the way that plays out. Almost almost kind of in a way like, you know, people were very much into plays, you know, back in the day. I wonder if it was a tradition of two. It gives you time to find your seat, you know. Yeah, yeah that's exactly what yeah. it came out of. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, I, I, it's weird watching this movie now, though, because for whatever reason, they decided to keep that in, you know. When it would have been easy to take it out, but you know, I would love to know whose idea or who 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 made the final call. Like, no, leave it in there because good on you, sir, for doing that because it really gives you the full effect of what's about to happen. And that whole first sequence is really unsettling. And if it wasn't for the eyes, I mean, they're very ape-like. I mean, the people that are acting like apes, they they sell it pretty well. You know, if it wasn't for, the, I can see like where the mask ends and I can see like their actual eye, you know, but other than that, yeah, no, other than that, I think it's a, it's a great sequence. And I kind of laughed because after, um, the, the head ape there, he like gets the bone and they're the opposing ape, like kind of comes to confront him and he just whacks him with it. He like just keeps beating on him. And then at one point he is like, ha, like it just breaks and like flies in the air. And he's like, and have another one. Like it just made me laugh. I was like laughing uncontrollably, but that's a, that's a really um, important sequence because, and then it clicks with me, you know, they're just trying to live their life. Then when he throws the bone up in the air and we get, you know, kind of the businessmen aspect, whatever of, you know, people living their lives in the future. Um, I love how the transition, whenever he throws the bone, the tool, it immediately gets a cut of a spaceship in the air. And, you know, had there been modern editing tools available, that would have been a much more interesting, you know, a much more believable sequence that would have been able to convey the message being said, you know, much more smoothly. But I was, as soon as that happened, it clicked in my mind, we're not any different than the apes, you know, because they're trying to 
advanced technology and Kubrick does a really Kubrick does a really good job of slowly moving slowly moving it along you know kind of trickling it to let you kind of come to your own conclusion of hey we're not that much different than the apes in my opinion well and I think I'm I'm going really far back into the well for this one but I think in the book when it describes the satellite that satellite is actually holding missiles is is because this was the age where the cold Cold war was going on and and star wars and that those whole concepts of fighting in space were really uh, coming to the fore and so if that's the case if this satellite has got missiles then you know you you talked about it what was the first thing that the monkeys did with their tool they started to kill right they killed for food and, and yeah, that's a that's a great thing. But then that very quickly progresses to, you know, your fellow creatures. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's immediately switching from that bone to a satellite full of missiles. You're exactly right. Man hasn't really come that far. Yeah. We're still just finding ways to kill each other. Exactly. And I think, you know, that small detail could really be missed because especially now for a modern audience, someone going back now. And I think, you know, us, us kind of talking through it is probably kind of helping Mikey. Cause it's what helped me the first time after I watched it was what, what is this? You know, because we're, we're so brainwashed by flashy material and, um, things we, not to say that that part, that is bad. There's just not a lot of meat in this, this, uh, this movie has a lot of meat and it also has a lot of fat and, I feel like there's sequences of this movie that could have been trimmed down so much, but the fact that it wasn't like certain, sh- certain decisions that were made with, with lingering shots and, and shots that seem like they're going on too long, they're there on purpose going on that long to make you feel a certain way. And that just goes to show, I mean, we're talking about the guy who made the shining and a clockwork orange, you know, this guy knows how to make you feel something. And I, I love that. So let's kind of talk about this uh, this second sequence here with the businessman. Um, now, so just so the listeners know, at this point, this guy's going to this airport. You know, we see all these, which, by the way, the effects in this movie are crazy for the time period that they were shot in. Um, we're talking no CGI. It's a very raw feeling, but at the same time, it looks good like the the space station spinning i mean i'm like that look that looks like how interstellar portrays it you know it's it's really good what are you guys thoughts on the on the effects i want to see the practical effects behind the scenes of how they did the end where he's jogging i just want to see how they did that camera work because i'm like i know that they don't have the technology we have so i'm wondering who's on a cart running behind that guy while the other (laughs) All the other motors twisting the entire set. I want to see that really bad. Yeah, I do too. Ethan, go ahead. Yeah, this this one is just a. a, This is the movie that set the precedent for everyone that was going to do model shots and matte paintings after that. And this one shows it as it should be done. It's done right, and it's just it's gorgeous. Just the exterior shots, and I love the fact that they took the the space plane that's docking with the station is a Pan Am. Uh, yeah, America, you know? yeah. And, and you know this is the this is the time 1968 67 whenever it was that pan am was you if you went flying you flew pan am it was never going to go out of business so of course it was going to be there in 2001 we didn't know what was going to happen in 91 92 when it collapsed and went bankrupt and disappeared but you know that's beside the point <laughs> it was still a great call 
the way they put corporations kind of at the fore. Yeah. Uh, because that's what we see happening now. Yeah. Uh, space is going to man's going to push into space because of corporations. And yeah. So we're going to have names in space. And I thought that was really very forward thinking. It really was. And there's certain things with the tech may, you know, certain decisions made with the technology where they're not that far off. Um, like the video call, you know, they probably weren't thinking they were thinking, oh, well, surely we'll still be paying for pay phones. You know, we'll still be there'll still be a charge. And instead of a nickel, it's going to be a dollar and all this stuff like pay phones aren't ever going away. And, oh, there's going to be a camera in it. Little did they know we'd have freaking cameras in our phones, you know, and what is a you know, we're going to have a mobile phone. Are you kidding me? It's just kind of crazy. Go they ahead, did have Mikey. tablets, though. I did. I saw the tablet as well. Yeah, they had iPads pretty much. It was kind of what it looked like. It was, it was really mm-hmm. like and, and also not only did they have the tablets there, but what were they doing with them? They're, they were sitting there TV. not talking to each other, eating, watching, a, yep. watching their mobile device. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a very weird to watch because it kind of looked it kind of looked like if, if no if somebody had no idea what they were seeing and didn't know that 2001 was a thing, it kind of looked like someone trying to be a little flashy with their indie film school knowledge, you know what I mean? And tried to make an indie film is kind of, I feel like some people would be like, is this, you know, what, what was the, now what was the budget on this? The couple thousand dollars, you know, I mean, feels like that might be something that they would be saying, but yeah, I mean, it's the practical use of effects. The one thing that kind of has me scratching my head, which, and I'm sure there's some invisible lines, but the one thing that I can't really, place how they would have done um is the floating pin so like there's a pin at the very beginning of the movie in zero gravity and i'm like okay well there must be just some lines tugging at it or something but it did it looked really good and that's with all the camera shots at one point i think whenever uh frank and dave they're climbing into a um like a manhole of sorts Oh, you, yeah. yeah. So you see it spinning. And so I'm looking at it. I'm like, man, that looks good. But then I think about it. The camera is inside the tunnel and turning. Never moved. And it never moved, you know. So it just looks that way. But if you're not thinking about it, you totally buy into the illusion. And that's really mm-hmm. a good thing of what this movie does right is there's a lot of illusion in this that is incredible. Go ahead. Yeah, my. Are you there? Did I? Are you there? Can I hear you? Were you Were you trying to talk to me? Uh, Ethan, I think he's off. No, I'm I'm here. Okay, yeah. there we go. There we go. Just making sure we're on Zoom, ladies and gentlemen. Just in case you uh didn't realize, <laughs> we're having a video call just like in 2001. That's right, exactly. Um, so you know this business man thing, I I had never really put together. Um, and what was his name? Uh, Haywood. Haywood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Haywood. Yeah. Yeah. So. He basically is kind of the cover-up guy. You know, he's like, can you kind of explain his role a little bit, Ethan? Because I, I want to make sure I have this right. Well, uh, he, he's part of the, and I forget, it's it's a U.S.-based space council. Um, because, you know, there's still the power play between the Soviet Union and the United States. Right. Even, even here. And he's part of the, the, the inner circle. He, he's not a leader. But he's just he's been sent by the council to make sure everything is going well and to do an investigation into this thing that they found. And, uh, you know, he's a he is a bigger figure in the book. You kind of get to delve into his life and and what he's about a bit more. And and he is actually a very interesting character and actually will 
continue forward if you read the 2010 novel he's he's the main character there and, and the movie as well uh 20, 2010 um uh, the year we make contact i think that came out in like 82 or 83 and uh he's the character is played by roy scheider in that movie but uh, haywood floyd is a major character in the story uh, of 2001 as well and he's you know he's uh he's just a facilitator basically yeah and he's basically you know the the story has gotten out like hey there's this epidemic on this space station on the moon clavius or whatever you know and we appreciate you keeping it under wraps and basically he told that board of directors he's like if anyone has anything negative negative to say i'll be happy to put it in my report but we're not changing it you know like that's basically what it is and i was like all right well this guy has a pretty easy job i guess you know <laughs> it's pretty much what i was thinking but the thing that that has kind of not stumped me, but the thing that sticks out in my mind is whenever they they go to the moon, of course, to see the Sentinel, because I'm I'm assuming that's another Sentinel that's there. There's an additional another Sentinel, monolith. another yeah, monolith, monolith. Yeah. right? Okay, so then they touch it and they hear this high pitched squeal. Basically, what does that mean? You know, that's a big question that I have. Is what, what you know? Did they have a revelation? Is that what happens to you? Like after you touch it? Go ahead, Ethan. Well, it's they kind of go through the exposition on the flight out to the monolith, uh, and it's it's if you're not paying attention to the dialogue, if you're just looking at the graphics and everything, you can kind of miss it. Um, but they're talking about the fact that this monolith was buried four million years ago, right? Forty feet of forty feet under the surface of the moon, and oh it's there to be found. That that is the reason why the 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 aliens that created these things that's why they put it there is so that man would find it at whatever point they advanced far enough to where they could unearth it then you know that was going to be and when he touches it it, it's not actually the touching it's the when the sun strikes it because you notice that whole scene the sun is rising right it's a very slow moon uh you know sunrise there on the moon when the sun strikes the monolith the monolith knows oh i've been unburied they've they've made it this far and then it sends a signal further out. Gotcha. And that's why the discovery they, is headed to Jupiter to because Jupiter. that's where the signal That's where it sitting. pinged. Right. Gotcha. Okay. So it was like, oh, and they talked about high radio frequencies as well. So yeah. did you catch that? So that's okay. That makes sense. Okay. It, and did you notice the, the music that plays uh, while they're all gathered around and they're taking the pictures? Uh, what was that one called? I, I put the note down on that. Uh, Requiem of First Soprano by Leggetti is the music that's playing. We also heard that in 2014's Godzilla movie. I don't oh, know really? if you guys remember that or not. Uh-uh. But when, when, they're doing, when they're doing the halo jump out of the, uh, uh-huh. into San Francisco, that, that music that's playing when they're falling in that parachute scene, it's the same piece of music, which I've, uh, I've always appreciated. That's, that's cool. cool. Yeah. I'll have to listen for that. I, I really liked 24, the 2014 Godzilla movie. Honestly, I don't, I don't understand the hate it got. Oh, nice, Mikey. Mikey's got a little toy <laughs> yeah, there. That's look. Yeah. Look at you go. Yeah. Um. I find the uh the the lack of knowledge of the culture of the aliens. That's like the the best part of this. One of the best parts of this movie, honestly, because there's so much we don't know, and we'll kind of get to that in a little bit. Um. I have it written down here about Kubrick's directing, and I kind of touched on it a little bit. You know, everything that he does in this movie is for a purpose and you know basically anytime people always ask like okay well what why is the director's role so important it's like well every decision that is made on this motion picture 
is a direct result of the director. No decision gets made without the director's approval. So if a movie sucks, it's because the director said it was okay. And that's where, you know, that's that's the bigger picture. Whether or not, you know, the producers are in, are in his ear telling him, like, hey, this sucks. That's the director's decision to make the decision. Um, or it's the director's job to make the decision. And I bet Kubrick is a tool because this movie's great. And I bet there was a lot of people in his ear telling him, don't do this or do do this. And he said, shut up this is what we're doing and thank god he did because it's unique it's art it's unsettling and it it does its job there's no other movie out there like this really maybe it's weird because there are elements of this movie that feel like a horror movie but this is not a horror movie but there are times where i feel unsettled almost to the point to where like i'm watching alien is kind of what it feels like um which is crazy can I, if I might go ahead, how did you feel about the whole sequence with the breathing when they're out changing the, the module for the antenna? Uh, what did, what did you think about all of that? Me? Yeah. That, it made me so uneasy. I did not like it. <laughs> Cause I was like, <laughs> it made me, it reminded me of when I'm on Xbox and somebody has their microphone, like <laughs> a centimeter away from their mouth. I was like, bro, you gotta, you gotta do something about that. But I, I know it was intentional, so that's why I was just like, yeah. okay, I just need to power through this because I can't take that. <laughs> I but believe, yeah, it, I think it did its job because I was like, I don't like this. Yeah, <laughs> it, well, it, it makes me tense up when I when I watch it. Yeah, same here. But you know what's interesting is when you watch those scenes because it, it does that a lot through the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of breathing, but when you watch the characters, they're not breathing. And what's interesting is if you look at them, they're not like audibly or visibly breathing in and out. And what's interesting is we don't hear that audible breathing until the very end of the movie with the old guy, which might infer that he's been watching the whole time, which is something that we're going to kind of get into a little bit. Are you picking up what I'm laying down, Ethan? I I think so. It's an interesting take. We'll see where that goes. Okay, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. I I think it's, it's interesting that Kubrick would have made that decision uh, to put the breathing in there because it, it notches up the tension of a, uh, of visually it's not a scene where there's any tension at yeah. all. The, the breathing is what makes you feel like, Oh, there could be danger here. Yeah. You're we're and in then, space. <laughs> yeah. And then right in there we get the, the intermission and I want to ask you guys, I know y'all seen movies that have intermissions in them in there before. What do you think about the intermission here? And a follow-up question to that is, do you think intermissions should be a thing for long movies again? I'm going to I'm going to defer to Mikey first. Go ahead. There's always movies that you wish were longer and I wish that they did have intermissions so then people could justify having a longer movie. I would love it if there was intermissions personally. Then it would give you a chance to go get some popcorn, go get go get some food, and then come back and be like, "All right, let's do this." But <laughs> bathroom without missing something. Exactly. Yeah, I would love that, but I know it's probably not cost effective and stuff like that now. But yeah, I would love to see that come back, and even if it's like not blockbuster movies, if it's just a movie I go see, I would still really enjoy that personally. What do you think about this movie, though, Mikey? Like, how, how do you feel about the intermission in this movie? I thought it was well-timed because i was i watched the movie time the time and it's an hour 30 and there's only like an hour left when the intermissions happens but it doesn't feel like it's 
off time because there's so much that happens in the last portion. So I thought it was nice. The intro back into the movie still stressed me out again because I was like, I broke something. What's going on here? <laughs> but it's still, I liked it. I thought it was well-timed. That's that's a big thing for me because I, I didn't feel like, ah, oh, but I was just like, okay, so there, okay, yeah. I feel, let's, let's keep going. Yeah, yeah, I agree with Mikey. And I, I feel like this is really the time where you really feel like Hal is actually a threat. And given the time period that this was released, artificial intelligence wasn't even, uh, that wasn't even on the the horizon. That wasn't even a thing. So you have, you know, Joe Blow and whatever, you know, another guy going to the bathroom saying, now, is that computer bad? Like, is that a thing? You know, you know, back in the day, it's like, well, well, gee, gee, Timmy, is, uh, you think old Hal is a bad guy there? Well, gee, Willikers, I don't know, Frank, you know, that's what I was thinking in my mind. I'm like, they're. The, the way that they insert that and just the painting between the two characters and you realize, oh, how's how's a, a psycho like he's going to kill these guys and what what exactly is he capable of? You know what I mean? So I, I love the and then and then you, you get the intermission right after that. So, yeah, no, I think it's very in a time where intermissions were a thing. I think it was a good decision to tell the story in such a way to where you know you're going to have an intermission and then putting that intermission there. So what do you, what about you, Ethan? And speaking of intermission, after you give your answer, I know it's a little early, but I got to go pee. So go final thought for this first half, and then we'll, we'll uh, continue in a minute. I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of intermissions in movies. I've, it seems like a, I've watched a lot of movies here lately from the fifties and sixties. Um, uh, sound of music sound of music perfectly timed just like here in 2001 just a perfectly timed intermission where it you know the movie is already allowing you to just kind of live in the space and enjoy the scenery and just kind of float along with the story and then the intermission comes along and it allows you in our modern age, you know, we don't have a concession stand or a bathroom. Well, we, we do have a bathroom and I guess you could go get something to eat. But if you just sit there on the couch and enjoy it, uh, it allows you the time to put pieces together and think about what you've just seen and reflect on what you know is going to come. And I find that it really helps me to actually enjoy the movie a, a lot more. And so I've always appreciated the intermission when it comes here in 2001 and just about every other movie where, where they have those still. Um, yeah, I love it. Yeah, I do too. I wish they existed now. And there's honestly only a handful of movies that I've seen that I can think of that have intermission. Like Titanic has an intermission. The fellowship of the ring has an intermission. Um, this movie has an intermission. Uh, there's a bunch that have, them. you know, I've heard you guys talk about it a lot and I feel the same way. It seems like movies today, they are very conscious of the time that they have the audience and there's a lot of plot points and you can't have a, a, a big blockbuster movie without a lot of plot points. And they're just constantly throwing them at you. It feels like nowadays. Yeah. And it doesn't give you the time to really process the story and appreciate the plot that's unfolding. Yeah. This is a movie that you, some people might look at it and say, well, there's not enough plot here to really hold my interest. It's, it's allowing you to just exist yeah. As the story unfolds and, and think about internally and externally what you're seeing and reflecting on it internally as well. And I, that's what I appreciate about this, 
this movie and the time that it comes out of. Yeah, no, that's that's great. And it makes me think of today, you know, you might take 50 pictures that you really, really, you know, you might take 50 pictures of, with an idea of what you think you might have. And, but you really only spend time looking at like two or three of them, you know. Well, with this movie, you get those two or three pictures immediately, like put out there right in the forefront for you to just enjoy. Or even being in a museum, yeah, there's a lot of paintings there in a museum or a lot of pieces there in a museum. Mikey's having some issues. You all right there, pal? <laughs> Thank God for mute button. <laughs> <laughs> you might, you know, you there might be a lot of paintings there, but there's some that you can just sit down and just look at for a long time, you know, because for whatever reason, it's capturing your your interest. And that's just kind of what you were saying about plot points. That kind of what makes me think of that. Um, but no, really good takes all around. I'm really enjoying this episode. And speaking of intermission, why don't we take just a 